four various worldviews of church history. And, and I'm not going to go over that again tonight. Um, I think there's some of those available on the back table. And, and from going over that last Sunday night, um, it was insightful, and I want to zero in a little bit more on, on worldview in regard to, um, not specifically our church, the church here is history, but in, in church history, what makes, um, what makes specific churches the way they are? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul was writing to Timothy, and he said, When I call to remembrance the unfaith, unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and then in, your, in his mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that it's also in you, he said in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 1, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in you by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The faith that was in his grandmother, Lois, in his mother, Eunice, and now in him, he says, I want to stir you up in your mind about this faith. You know, biblical faith is such that it goes all the way back to Jesus Christ. And God used some, someone or something to introduce you to the gospel. And he used someone to introduce them and so on and so forth. And, and thank God for that, that the gates of hell have not prevailed. There have been times where the remnant of the gospel has been quite small throughout the dark ages. The dark ages are called the dark ages because the light of the gospel was, was, was dimmed greatly. And, and thankfully, we have all been privileged to live in a time period where the light of the gospel has been very evident, especially in our nation. And, and throughout church history, um, it is a fascinating journey to see how God's hand has worked throughout history, specifically throughout church history. And and sad to say, many times we are ignorant of that. If I were to ask you tonight, why are you a Baptist, some of you would immediately say, I'm not. Some would say, what do you mean by a Baptist? And some would say, well, I've always been a Baptist. But if, if you were asked, what makes a Baptist distinctive? What are, what is something that 
is unique or that separates them, you could come up with a lot of things. You could come up with bullheaded, arrogant, like to fight. I mean, and, and, and you could list examples of that throughout Baptist history. Um, my dad, when he was in Bible college, experienced some of those things, and he said, one thing I'll never be, never, ever be, is a Baptist. And so he went out, and he was ordained as something else, not a Baptist, and he got in a church that half the church believed in eternal security and half the church did not believe in eternal security. And he thought, no problem. We're teaching through the Gospel of John. When we come to John chapter 3 and verse 16, um, how long is everlasting life? And one old boy raised his hand and said, until you sin. And he got in and started studying the scriptures and studying the scriptures. And he thought, where I'm right now doesn't fit with what I believe the scriptures are. And so he resigned from that church. And he went, and make a long story short, he ended up identifying, much to his chagrin and eating crow, that's kind of a St. Lawrence tradition, I think. But he said, you know, my study of the scriptures, this is what I need to identify with. He went and was reordained as, as a Baptist. Now, let me hasten to say, Number one, I believe there will be people from many, many, many different denominations in heaven. It's not denominations that will save you. I don't believe only Baptists will be in heaven. I believe a lot of Baptists will not be in heaven. Okay? So I don't want anybody to leave here thinking that. Um, also... Um, I'm a Biblicist long before I'm a Baptist, but I still believe that the term Baptist can help identify. We may be losing that, but um, can help identify what, what we believe and throughout history. And, and tonight we're going to go through an acrostic that spells out Baptist that at least makes this assembly here um, distinctive in the sense of different from others. Um, and again, I am more concerned that we be Christ-like than that we be anything. And yet, um, it troubles me that because of, because of church history, it troubles me that people today want to want to identify as anything that's generic. Um, Church of Christ, community of Christ, 
community church, Christ community church, whatever. Um, I think if you're something, put a label on it. You believe that too because you don't go to Hy-Vee and just pick up a can of goods. You want it labeled with soup. You want it labeled with crushed pineapple. You want to know what you're getting. And I think many churches today do not want to identify what they are and, and honestly, I believe that's being deceitful. This is what we are. This is what we believe. So let me get into this acrostic, and if you have any questions. And this is the first and most important point. B, the Bible is our only rule for authority and practice. Throughout church history, and, and I can't go into great detail, but there have been people from the time of Christ called by various names and little pockets of groups throughout the world that said this book, the Bible, is, this is our authority. This is what tells us about faith. This is what defines the Christian life. This is what tells us about practices. It's not tradition. It's not creeds, it's not doctrinal books written by man, it's not a church constitution, it's not a denomination. The authority that, all authority that carries the final say in this church is to be the Bible. What does the Bible say about it? And honestly... We ought to be able to bring whatever we believe up and say, let's examine it by the Bible. If we find that isn't what the Bible says, then we better change it. If it's in the Bible, then from an accurate, thorough study of the Bible, then we better do it. I mean, what what does a, a New Testament church look like? You know, I think we're almost afraid to ask those questions nowadays because maybe that isn't how we're doing it. And our desire ought to be, God, we want to be the type of church that you want, not the type of church we want. And and it comes down that we must saturate in the Bible in order for this church to truly manifest that the Bible is our only rule for authority and practice. That is the first and most important. The second is the autonomy of the local church, meaning the self-governing of the local church. Um, Throughout the Bible, there were many letters written in the Bible to the church at Colossae, to the church at Galatia and Philippi and so on. And Paul went and ministered, many of them he started, others he went and ministered to, but the head of every church is Christ. And each church acted independently of other churches. No church was was dictating 
the beliefs and practices of another church. There wasn't a hierarchy that this is the head church for Iowa and in Baptist circles or whatever circles. A church is responsible for its own actions, and this church must give an account to God for its actions. So there is the autonomy of this church, and the church is who we are. We are the church. The church isn't a building. The church is people. And and in realizing that, with the Bible as our only rule for authority and practice, the Holy Spirit is here to direct us and to guide us into truth. And the practical implications of this are that the church is self-governing, and the church sets up, yes, there is a church constitution, and that's part of the church setting up in an orderly manner, how are we going to do business. But if the church constitution ever comes in conflict with the Word of God, the Word of God always prevails. It is to always prevail. The church constitution is to describe what we believe, our doctrinal statement, articles of faith, and then to prescribe how that we take care of business, just the logistics of a church in an orderly manner. There are some things God says about that, and there are other things that he leaves up to the church. But God didn't design a church to have a a district superintendent that rules over and or some group of people that then says this is who you will have as your pastor the church decides those things and other things um we're an independent baptist church meaning we're we're not tied in with with anything that has um uh, power or authority we believe in the autonomy of the local church okay p is we believe in the priesthood of the believer. Through Jesus Christ, every believer has access to the holy place, to God. This has been, throughout church history, this has been a major tipping point. And there have always been believers that believe this, and in the 300 A.D. came along the um, Roman Catholic Church, and with their doctrines and teachings, they believed that you came through a priest to go to God. There have always been people that believe, no, once you come to know Christ as your personal Savior, you are a priest before God. You have access to God. You can bring prayers and praise and and you can fellowship with God that there, 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. And in Christ, we are a priest. We can go directly to God at any time, at any place, and there are no sacred places for prayer 
Um, there are no special people that you go to for confession. Um, we have, we are priests of God, sons of God and daughters of God in Christ Jesus. The first T is there are two requirements for church membership. The first requirement is salvation. The very word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means a called out assembly, meaning we are called out of the world by faith in Christ Jesus and and we are called out and we identify with fellow believers and a person must be born again to join this church you you give a testimony of salvation that you give first of all to the deacons the reason that it's first given to the deacons and then to the church is we want to avoid a situation if a person really is not born again to have them first just give it to the church. You know, I was walking along, fell off my horse, hit my head, and I feel like a new man, and I want to join this church. Ah, wait a minute. That's not a testimony of being born again. So if that... That's the reason it's first given to the deacons and then to the church. A public testimony that I have repented of my sins and am a follower of Jesus Christ. And the second requirement, biblically, and um, you can search the scriptures, but the second requirement for membership is baptism after salvation. So a clear testimony of salvation and baptism after salvation as a public testimony that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. It um, The Bible sets the pattern, believe and be baptized. It is a, a step of obedience, proof that we are committed to the ways of Christ, a public testimony that I want to identify with you as fellow believers. I am one of you. I, I am identifying with that. And refusal to be baptized by immersion following salvation either means one of two things. Either we are not genuinely a believer or two, we are just willfully disobedient to the command that God gives. So, there's two requirements for membership. Salvation and baptism by immersion following salvation. The I, and and the, these aren't officials sent out by some Baptist. These are, I've been taught some of these things. I've modified some of these. This I is one that I believe This is one that I've modified and put in here because I believe it's very important in the day that we're living in. We believe in the indwelling of the Spirit of God. The moment you get saved, the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life. It's not salvation and sometime later you receive the Holy Spirit. 
It is the moment you are saved. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says, If any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So the moment you receive Christ, the Spirit of God takes up permanent residence in you, and you become the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit starts teaching you. He starts saying, this is something that you ought to be, you should be reading your Bible. You will have a, a, a believer will have a, a new desire for the Word of God. That's the Spirit of God drawing into it. The Spirit of God will say, that isn't anything you need in your life anymore. This is what we need to put in our life. You need to fellowship with other believers. The Spirit of God dwells in us, and He teaches us, and the filling of the Spirit is when we submit to the Spirit and obey the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be ye filled with the Spirit. It's not a one-time thing. The original language, it is, Be ye being filled with the Spirit. Over and over again, I can obey the Spirit of God. He is controlling me now. And in one minute later, I can be walking in the flesh. But every believer has the Spirit of God dwelling within him. There are people that teach that you get saved and later you get the Spirit. No, it's the Spirit of God that seals, Ephesians tells us. He seals our salvation. The word seal there means it's the earnest payment. When you buy a house, you put down some earnest money, a $1,000, to show that you're really serious about it, that you're locking it up until you get the finances together. The Spirit of God, God gave us His Spirit to prove to us that we have been bought with the blood of Christ We belong to Him. He is the earnest of our salvation. He is there to teach us and grow us and develop us and to comfort us. So, the indwelling of the Spirit. Letter, the first S, is separation of church and state. This is, this is huge. And we don't have time to go into great detail here. The Rome, Rome's view is that the church rules over the state. Totalitarian view is that the state rules over the church. And many throughout history countries have had state churches where the state and the church are on equal basis, and the church, I mean, the state helps provide for the church and and takes care of the church and so on. We believe that Christ is the head of the church, and the state is to have no jurisdiction, control over the church, But the church, as believers, is to have an impact in the government. It does not mean, and time does not permit me to go into it, but if you want more information about where this came from, 
We've mentioned it many times, but if you've never heard or you were sleeping when we talked about it before, it is not in the Constitution. I will stand, I'll give everything I have if you can prove to me the separation of church and state, that phrase is in the Constitution. It's not in the Constitution. It was. It came from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptists, and they were concerned that the state was going to start being involved in their business. And he wrote back to them and said, no, there is a one-way wall of separation between church and state that keeps the state from being involved in the church. And you might, you might say, I'm not a Baptist and I don't like Baptists. That's fine. That's between you and God. But don't talk to me about religious liberty in the United States of America because were it not for Baptists like Patrick Henry and others, we would have state churches in America today. When our nation was founded, They did not believe that churches could exist without the state. And there were groups of people, in particular Baptists, in particular a large portion of them from Virginia that said, no, that's what we came from. We came from the state ruling over the church. And people said, well, the church can't exist if it doesn't have the state's help. And they said, no, if God is in it, he'll take care of it. And they, they were adamant that we must have religious liberty. And we owe that today because this is a distinctive that is, that is unique to the forefathers of our faith. Were it not for that, there were, there were different plans to have three different state churches in America. And you had to be in one of those or four different but we have religious liberty, and the First Amendment is, is due to that. The last T is there are two ordinances given in Scripture, baptism that we already talked about, and communion or the Lord's Supper. They are not sacraments. It's not like you receive any measure of grace when you take them. They, they do not help you to become saved. They are a testimony, baptism, a public testimony that I am trusting Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection for my salvation. And communion is done in remembrance of Christ. And the body, the bread does not become the body. And the juice does not become the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a symbol to remind us of Christ's body that was broken for us. The juice is a symbol to remind us of the blood of Jesus Christ without which there is no remission of sin. It is to remind us that we are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is to remind us to examine our life and to make sure that we are not harboring or hiding sin in our life and to remind us to have a heart of thanksgiving to Jesus Christ for what he has done in our life. They are ordinances that separate from sacrament, as I already said, 
that it is it is not um, grace given to you. It is not another step that keeps you saved. Um, it is symbolic. And the requirements for communion given to the local church are salvation and having followed the Lord in the waters of baptism. The S for Baptist is that we believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. We believe that he will set up his reign of a thousand years. I'm not going to go into all the prophecies of things here. But we believe that Jesus Christ is coming He will set up his reign of a thousand years. Satan will be loosed at the end of that time. He's bound during that thousand years. He will be loosed and deceive many. And then Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and the great white throne judgment. And those that have rejected Christ will be separated from God for all eternity. And God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's a very important doctrine of God's Word that expands our horizons beyond this life. That we are given the blessed promise, this world is not our home. And and we believe that with all our heart because this is what God's Word, and it takes us back again The Bible is our only rule for authority and practice. But the key is, it's not important that we just say that. Are you a student of the Word? The only thing that will will make this church to be biblical and not to be ashamed and not to... um, Depart from the faith is by having a people that are students of the book, that study the word. It, it doesn't, it's not a pastor that's going to keep this church. It has to be. There are many, many churches that have been led astray because people didn't study the scriptures. Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of you. So, the challenge tonight is, and, and I'm, I'm not that concerned that you call yourself a Baptist. My dad used to say if somebody asked him, what would you be if you weren't a Baptist? He said, I'd be ashamed. <laughs> now, you may, that's a joke. And I'm not, and, and I know you can tell me there's a lot of bad things that have happened in Baptist circles. The point is, are you a student of the book? And do these principles that we mentioned tonight, are those things that you identify with? And can you say why you do identify? I went through those tonight, but you ought to have biblical reasons why you believe that these are the two keys for church membership. And this is why I believe in priesthood of the believer. Not just, uh, it says so somewhere in the Bible.
And that's what you have to do on your own. And you need to come to the, your own convictions. When the day comes that, that using the name Baptist may not identify with this, all right, there'll be some other name, all right? But don't be ashamed to identify with the truth of God's Word. 